Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Pastor Rob Ginter and Farmdale Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at farmdalebaptist.com. Racism, discrimination, it's all over the news. And it is um, popular in today's culture, a hot topic, I understand that. But uh, one of the things that people are saying about this hot topic of discrimination against people and groups is that there is racism, discrimination, what the scriptures refer to often as partiality, everywhere, in all things. Everything is racist. Everyone is racist. Everyone discriminates. And everyone is like that. So there is, has been a correction to, to the other direction by some. Um, and what we would have to be careful of is to say, we understand that everything is not racist, but that doesn't mean that nothing is racist, right? Like, it's, it's, it, we're not saying it's not, it doesn't exist and it's not real. Just because we might not go along with that it is on everything, everywhere, all the time, every person, every touching, every piece of wood, every cloth, just because we don't necessarily agree with that doesn't mean that it isn't a significant problem. So I don't want us to get lost in real discrimination, real racism, real superficial partiality among people. Because that happens. And when it happens in the outside world, and when someone discriminates for no good reason against someone or is uh, racist or partial over superficial reasons towards someone, uh, there are, are consequences. There's consequences. People get hurt. People die. Trouble happens. But when a person of God... A Christian is partial towards another person. One of the consequences of that is that the gospel doesn't go to that person. It's a gospel consequence of being partial, uh, being superficial, discriminating, being racist. There are gospel consequences when that rears its head in the church. So we are walking along verse by verse of the book of Acts, and we began in the first eight verses to see that they were to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here's the problem when you take the gospel out of Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth. There are those people there. There's people who are not Jews. There are people who are not like the people who are sharing the gospel. And we kind of have it backwards because when we, when we think about this, right, who's our Jerusalem? Is it, is it East Frankfurt? Uh, who's our Judea? Is it Lexington? Where's the uttermost parts of the earth? The Middle East. When in reality, we're looking at the book of Acts standing in the uttermost parts of the earth. We are the uttermost parts of the earth. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel has reached this place. 
So when we go through the book of Acts, the, the fruit of the gospel is our tail sitting right here in these pews, hearing that Jesus Christ died for sinners. So it worked. Here we are, where we shouldn't be, loving who we shouldn't love, worshiping the one who sits on the throne that we should have never known. That's what we're doing here. Now, though, when we read the book of Acts, chapters 9 and 10, we need to make sure that partiality, superficiality, things like racism, discrimination, don't prevent us from sharing the gospel with someone of a profession, of a life situation, of a skin color, of a smell, of a look, of a background, of a everything they've ever done. That can't get in the way between us and where the gospel has to go. So, beginning here in 9, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 32, the attention of Luke turns back to uh, Peter. So we, Paul is, being, is in Arabia, likely being discipled at this point. And here we are in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 with Peter. So what's happening here in verse 32? Peter is traveling to Christians in Lydda on his way to a man named Aeneas, who is bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. What happens? He rose the man off of his paralytic bed in the name of the Lord Jesus while he was at Joppa. Next, in verse 36, we are introduced to a follower of Jesus named Tabitha. Here's Tabitha's problem. She's dead. Luke describes her as someone, though, who is fully of good works and acts of charity, but she became ill and died. She could have had a widow's ministry at this point because they, when they send for Peter, wid widows are coming around showing clothes that she made for them. He raises her from the dead. And as a result, many believed. So what's happening at the end of chapter 9 here is uh, Luke is giving us snapshots of things that are going on. There is Aeneas and then Tabitha. He heals Aeneas, people believe in the Lord. He heals Tabitha, people believe in the Lord. That's what happens. And he doesn't really tell us much about either instance. So here's a question that I ask all the time. Why is this here? Why? I mean, they already showed that they can heal. Already showed that healing brings the gospel, spreads the gospel through these apostles. We've already seen that. So what is the point, my friends, in chapter 9, verse 32 to the end of the chapter? In verse 43. What's the point? Well, if we had a map, which I don't have, but if we had a map, we would see that the map is the point. The gospel is spreading geographically at this point. So if you look up here, here's our map. Here's Jerusalem right here. See those fingers? That's Jerusalem. And then over here is, that is where Lydda is. And if you go, so here we go, Jerusalem, Lydda, and then further up, he is at Tabitha. And he stays with a guy who's a tanner. 
So what's the point? Here's the point. The gospel is getting out of Jerusalem. So it's spreading geographically. And this makes sense for us because it's supposed to. From Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth, it's on the way. So why here? What's the point? What's the point of the gospel getting out of Jerusalem? We thought it would. It makes sense. They're supposed to. They're doing it. Let's go on. Well, the point here, if you look down at your Bible, in verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. That's what's happening. And this matters. This matters. So he healed two people and ends the trip at a leather worker's house. Why does that matter? Because leather worker, you know what leather is made out of? Animals. Live ones or dead ones? Quick quiz. You make leather out of a live animal or a dead animal? I'm just, just seeing if you're awake. A live one or a dead one? Somebody. A dead one. Thank you. Smart crowd. Y'all are great. So you make leather out of dead animals. You're like, wow, I learned the coolest fact in church today. You make leather out of dead animals. Who would have known? Beef jerky is the same, my friends. So is steak. Praise the Lord. But here, here's what we see here is that Peter is now staying at the house of a tanner, a leather worker, who would not have been allowed in the synagogue. In fact, he would have had to live 25 to 30 miles outside of the city limits, not allowed to live in town because of the smell, because of the smell and all of those dead animals. So there's this transition verse in verse 43 to which the gospel not only spreads geographically, but it spreads personally. Peter's now at a guy's house that Jews would have been disgusted at. No one's going to go to a leather worker or a taxidermist. I don't know if that ancient Near Eastern taxidermy, don't know. But if they did, he's staying at a leather worker's house. And what we see the emphasis of this passage that begins there and goes on to the Gentiles is that God does not discriminate in His offer of the gospel and neither should we. God does not discriminate in His offer of the gospel and neither should we. So first the gospel starts spreading geographically. Now it spreads personally to someone who Peter was not likely supposed to be hanging out with in that day but instead he does. His house would have been unclean. Anybody in his house would have been unclean. Unfit for worship would have been this tanner. So he stays there for many days. Jewish people would have had some serious problems with Peter. Peter, why are you hanging out with that taxidermy guy? You know you can't come to church. He stuffs possums there. Probably other animals makes leather there. There's no way around it. The people who were this Jewish audience of the book of Acts were racist in a way, separatist in a way, and wanted no part of non-Jewish people. The clearest illustration of this was the prophet Jonah. Jonah, who... God called the Nineveh to tell the city to repent. He goes to the city after being well vomit. He goes to the city and they repent. Praise the Lord. And he goes, if those guys 
are going to repent, you might as well kill this guy. Because I don't want to live in a world where those guys are part of this. So God, kill me if you're going to let them live. I don't want to live around them. Jonah wasn't the only guy that was like that. He wasn't. It's just a logical implication of the command in Acts chapter 1 to take the gospel, and there are going to be people that we might be reluctant in sharing the said gospel with because of issues in our own hearts. We, to understand this fully, we are introduced to a non-Jewish man named Cornelius beginning in chapter 10. He was a commander of the Roman military, the Italian cohort division. One commentator put it, this is kind of like a SEAL Team 6 of the special forces version. Cornelius is a special forces guy, but he's not a Christian. Luke lets us know that he's a God-fearer, so that's a class of Gentile people who ascribe to the tenets of Judaism but don't get circumcised. Why? Because it's, you know, circumcision. But he, he was generous, and he generously gave to the poor... And prayed to God, and as he's praying in verse 3, at the ninth hour, so that's the traditional time of Jewish prayer, he's doing his Jewish thing here, an angel comes to him in a vision. The angel calls him by name. And as you would be, he is terrified. He's terrified. The angel says, God has heard your prayer, now send men to Joppa and bring a guy named Simon Peter who's staying at a tanner's house. So we see the angel talking to Cornelius about fetching Peter. After preparing the heart of Cornelius, the Lord now prepares Peter. Verse 9 says the delegation from Cornelius is on their way, and Peter is on the roof praying around lunchtime. And while the food is being prepared, it must have taken too long, he falls into a trance. Don't be falling into some trances tonight at the Thanksgiving dinner, by the way. It's, It's a scary ordeal. Potentially. <laughs> because in his trance, there is this sheet comes da- coming down from heaven and all of these animals being brought down by the four corners of the earth. Reptiles, birds. And then he hears this voice, that he hears the voice that tells him, kill and eat. Bon appetit. Verse 14, here's his response. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten of anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him once again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So seeing the vision horrified him because according to Leviticus 11, these were animals that he was forbidden to eat. He shouldn't have been able to do this. This was one of the ways that God distinguished Israel from the other people is you don't eat these things that everybody else eats. And he took it seriously. But here's the problem. Peter saw this law that was supposed to separate him from the people around him, and it stopped at that. What was supposed to separate him kept him from reaching them. We have to be really careful about the things we don't do, the things that we don't say, things that we don't eat, drink, the places we don't go, lest 
Our separation from the world isolates us from the world in a way that keeps us from reaching the world. And that was what was going on here in Peter. What, uh, in Peter's situation, what separated from him from the world kept him from reaching the world. So listen, all of us, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Don't do the things of the world. Don't eat what they eat. Don't drink what they drink. Don't go where they go necessarily. However, there's going to be times and places that you go to and be with, that you are there in order to reach people for the gospel. And I'm not, don't get crazy. Come on, like gentlemen, this is, we are not having a Bible study at the gentlemen's club in Lexington. I'm not talking about that. There's not room for folly in those things. But we just have to be careful about our holiness lest it turns into legalism and something that separates us from the people that we're supposed to be reaching. So that's the wall that comes down for Peter here. Because there are three things that we're going to look at here in just a second. Three things that have to be removed from our or three obstacles that must be overcome for our life in order to embrace those with the gospel that we might be holding at arm's length. Because what was the response of Peter here in just a se- in verse 14? Look at how crazy this is. By no means, Lord. As R.C. Sproul put it, the irony here was no Lord. Right? You call him Lord. He's in charge. And if he's in charge, you're telling him no? That doesn't, that's not how that works. Right? That's not how that works. He, he's either Lord or he's not. And if he is, then you don't get to tell him no. He was refusing to overcome these obstacles to reach these people. So, this isn't a suggestion, it's a command, kill, eat. Which leads to the command in verse 20, to partake in their company. So the gospel's traveling to where it's never been, now it's going to who it's never gotten to. And now, there's these three characteristics that have to be in us in order to not hold the people at arm's length on Jesus' mission. So, to offer the gospel impartially, we should subtract hesitancy. Subtract hesitancy. I think I did all these in H's for you guys. You're welcome. In verse 19, the angel tells him that Cornelius' men are looking for him. Verse 20, here's the instructions. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So why would the Holy Spirit tell Peter, don't be hesitant about this? Well, because... In his heart and in his mind, to associate with these kind of people, he would have been hesitant to do so. He would have been hesitant to do so. He says, don't be hesitant because he probably was, and he probably would be. The word Luke uses here could mean doubt or waver, and it applies hesitating due to some type of discriminating factor. 
Now, to be clear, we should discriminate in certain things. You do not want me fixing your car. You do not want me doing building and grounds maintenance on this structure. I can barely tie my shoes. You should discriminate against me working on the HVAC in this place. You got to be careful, right? You got to be careful who you let babysit your kids. You got to be careful who you let babysit your grandkids. You got to be careful who you let do your taxes. Like there are, are, there are times and things in which that discrimination is wisdom, right? You, you want to discriminate against all the crooked accountants and you want to get a, an accountant that won't get himself and yourself in jail. But we're talking about some type of hesitancy based on who someone else is or what they are, so to speak, or what identity they assume that would keep us from connecting with them, building a relationship with them, getting the gospel to them. That's the type of hesitancy that we're talking about here. We shouldn't do it. We should subtract that from our life. This is even clearer here in verse 18 of chapter 10, in which that... They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. They won't even go in. They won't even approach the place. They call out from a distance. They knew who Peter was and what Peter thought about them, so they kept the distance. How many people are staying away from churches like this one because how they think that we would treat them if they came? There's a lot of stereotypes about us, that people might not be here because of the place would fall in if I were there, or they wouldn't welcome, they wouldn't let me come in. We need to live in such a way as to remove hesitancies from people approaching us individually when we go out into the community in order to reach the people that the Lord is calling us to reach. So just like the vision of the unclean animals would have tainted the clean, clean animals, so Peter was conditioned to believe that joining the Gentiles would have contaminated him. We have to be careful, lest we think being around... like. Like I said, we need to use wisdom. We don't want to... He who walks with the wise becomes wise. We don't want to walk with the fools and fool around. We have to use wisdom. However, we're not going to necessarily... If someone... With the sexual revolution that's going on, we're not going to catch their sin by being friends. Uh, that almost rhymed, you know? Like, we're not going to catch their sin by being a friend. We're, we're not. So, we must remove hesitancy from ourselves in order to reach the people 
that we should reach. Because on so there because this this goes buck wild crazy on both ends, right? We should we should fly every flag that every identity puts up. That's on one end, and on the other end, we shouldn't have anything to do with those people that deal with these things because you know it's it's like COVID. Neither of those are faithful things, right? We can. We lose our minds when we go towards, we can be with sinners in a friendship without being swallowed up or having to approve their lifestyle. You can have a friend that you don't approve of things that they do. And people, we've forgotten that. That That we can build a relationship with someone at work without celebrating the sin in their life. That is possible. I'm not just saying that's possible. I'm saying that has to be actual. That has to be actual. So we remove the hesitancy. We subtract the hesitancy to, to get this gospel out. And how do, how do we know that we're reacting to someone with subtracted hesitancy, without any hesitation? We are in a relationship with the coworker at work or the neighbor. How do we know we're doing it? How do we do it, that we're doing it right? Well, if you are hospitable to them. So to offer the gospel impartially, we should subtract hesitancy and we should show hospitality. So Peter invites them in to be his overnight guests in verse 23. Not only were they Gentiles, but Roman soldiers. This would have been unthinkable. Roman soldiers were cruel representatives of a foreign power that occupied them. And they occupied their land. And they were Gentiles. That means they were non-Jewish. And back in that day, Jewish dirt and Gentile dirt didn't ever supposed, wasn't ever supposed to touch. So if you had to go into a Gentile land, when you come off, you'd shake your clothes off unless you got that Gentile nastiness. Ooh, that's disgusting. I'm going to shake my clothes off because I'm so grossed out by this group of people. I don't want to carry any of their germs to my house. That's the attitude that they had in that day. Peter goes from that to letting them stay the night. Letting them use his ancient Near Eastern toilet. Letting them, him eat with them, house them, sleep in the same space as them. He's showing these people hospitality. We see Peter beginning to understand that staying away from those that religious people would see as unclean is not necessarily what God wants him to do. And Luke penned what probably, he probably was reminded of what Luke penned in Luke and Luke chapter fourteen, or he could have been reminded of this. Jesus, he, he said, he also said to the man who invited them, "When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid." But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Luke 14, Jesus says, this kingdom is kind of like a feast. And we're having this feast, and you're not supposed to just invite your friends into your life and serve your friends and people that serve you in return that you like back. No, you are supposed to invite, to serve, to care, to take care of the people who can't take care of you back who can't pay you back, who can't do nice things for you back. 
And, you know, the early church was together on a near daily basis. And Jesus tells us that one of the ways that we know that we're his disciples if we love one another. So an application of this is that we should spend a lot of time within each other's homes, at restaurants with each other. The way that people are going to know that we are his disciples one way is the way that we love other disciples of the Lord Jesus. That is what we are to look like. Isn't that challenging to love and serve and to take care of and to share life with people who disagree with you about things, who are a part of a church body, who look different than you, but they, you know what? They all love the Lord Jesus. Isn't that difficult? But it's kindergarten. It's kindergarten, my friends. Because what we're talking about is more than that. What Luke wrote about in Luke 14, the words of Jesus are beyond that. Yes, we should love and serve and take in the people who are in this room. Absolutely. We should. But what we're seeing here is not fellowship. It's not fellowship. Because what I'm talking about is fellowship. We're fellows in the same ship. Pretty sure that's a definition. Don't Google it. Right? That's what we should have. That's what we should share. But lo- let's go beyond what we think is challenging. Because that that's challenging. It's challenging. But it's doable because we have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Lord. It's certainly possible. Dr. Tony Marita makes a helpful distinction between fellowship and hospitality. He says, fellowship is that which happens among believers, and hospitality literally means love for strangers. Love for strangers. So fellowship is what we do together. Probably what we're going to do tonight at the Thanksgiving dinner. But what's hospitality? Hospitality is more of what we do at the clothes closet. That's more of hospitality. Why? Because we're taking care of people that we don't know. We're doing things to love on people that we don't know. See, that is what happens here. He's not just loving people who love him back and are in a covenant church relationship with him. He's taking in these soldiers and being hospitable to them. You see, hospitality is what the challenge is for us. To show that we actually don't discriminate. So we take them in, we take care of them, we do things for them, we love on them. And it shows that we don't have hesitancy. And it shows that we want to offer the gospel to them freely. That's what happened to Peter. He begins showing that to others. Are we going to keep the people that the Lord Jesus is wanting us to reach at arm's length? Or are we going to subtract hesitancy? Are we going to show them hospitality? How well do you love on strangers? How well do you serve 
not only do you share life with the people in this room, but do you do things toward the loving of people who can't pay you back, can't do anything for you in return? See that, my friends, that's the challenge in offering this gospel to other people is caring about them and doing things for them even if they can't do it for us. So to offer the gospel impartially, we should subtract hesitancy. We should show hospitality. Maybe the hardest of all, we should show humility. We should show humility. Look at that in verse 25. When Peter entered, so he goes to Cornelius' house. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. So this well-off, distinguished Roman commander of Roman SEAL Team 6 sees Peter, this uneducated, country-fried, country-fied Jewish fisherman, and he falls down at his feet and worships him. He worships him. Now, this was the type of worship that Cornelius probably learned in his Roman background because Caesar claimed divinity. So if someone like that came into your presence, particularly someone like Caesar, why, you'd be dead if you didn't bow the knee. So he bows the knee to Peter. <laughs> Makes no eye contact and bowed low, probably. That's the traditional, that's what, as tradition for the Romans, that's what it would have been. He was a product of his culture, so he placed his misguided worship on somebody else. Unfortunately, that, as we think about this text, that is what we do sometimes in Christianity. There has arisen platforms by speakers, writers, rock stars, everything in between. There's a class called Christian Celebrities. And the problem with Christian celebrities is they like to be celebrated. And the bigger problem with that is that there is celebration and worship of the one who sits alone on that throne. And that is the Lord Jesus, the only one to be worshipped. And for us to do that, we must shy away, like us who take platforms, who teach, we must take a bow, right? Take a seat, take a background seat to the Lord. And that's what Peter does here. That's probably why that he was able to share the gospel with him because he wasn't willing to receive worship from him. And the same will be for us. If we're okay with not being celebrated by people, then we are ready for the gospel to go out from us. Clearly, in Peter's life, that was the case. Cornelius is not a Christian. He shows his true colors. He misguidedly worships Peter. Peter says, stand up. I'm just a guy like you are. The only person in the Bible, in, in creation, but particularly mentioned in the, in the Bible, who receives worship is Jesus Christ. And that's because he is God in the flesh, the only one worthy of worship. So how can Christ use us to be as human instruments, not hesitating, 
But being hospitable, we have to be humble, realizing that the person we're dealing with is just a guy, just a girl, just a guy or girl like us. And we're just a guy or girl like them. We're not any better. We're not any different. Looking at the scriptures and looking at our lives, the only difference between us and the person that we're sharing this gospel with is that the grace of God has already opened our eyes to the glories of Christ. Meanwhile, they're blinded. And we're just, we'd have been blind just like them if God hadn't moved on our heart. If He hadn't took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, we would still be stone-hearted. So Peter recaps for Cornelius what has happened in verses 28 and 29. Telling him that according to the law, he shouldn't be there, but God has shown him not to call anyone uncommon or unclean. So that's how we offer the gospel to everybody. We must be hospitable and humble because we are nothing and he is everything. So knowing this, those are the three obstacles that come forth here, right? We are subtracting hesitation. We are showing hospitality. We're showing humility in order to reach these people. And then Peter begins to herald Christ to him in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So let me break that down for you in verses 34 and 35. One, God can save anyone. God can save anyone. So why do we offer this gospel like we do to all these people that we offer it to? Because do not forget that God can save anyone. Fresh from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, is a stone-cold killer. And the Apostle Paul is a walking, breathing, writing, preaching example about how that God can save anyone, especially, the, especially those who violently, ferociously, passionately hate Him. Paul was an example about how that God can save anyone. Peter has learned this. He now sees someone not lumped into a stereotypical category by their skin color or their sin preference, but by their relationship to God. You see that in verses 34 and 35. He doesn't know anything about Gentiles in this verse. He doesn't say anything about Cornelius. He just says, God shows no partiality. He sees him in relationship to God. Because in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God can save anyone. Think about your, the person in your family that you're going to be eating Thanksgiving with who probably is standoffish to you if you've ever shared the gospel with them or if you've been too scared to share the gospel to them because you know what they think. You know what they think because they're vocal about what they think. You know who they vote for. You know who they didn't vote for. And you know what they think about your religion. That person right there. God can save anyone. You see, because it does not depend on anyone but God. If 
God had to bring everyone in line and we all pass tests, we'd be in trouble and I wouldn't be here. But the truth is, he can save anyone. And look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. Because Jesus is Lord over everyone. This is the good news. This is the good news, that God can save everyone. God became a man to bridge the gap that you did with your sin. God is holy and righteous, just, perfect in all of His ways, dwells in unapproachable light, created everything into existence, made us in His image, the perfect one, the holy one, the good God Almighty, that one, is God over everyone, who can save anyone, and Jesus is Lord over everyone. See, man is at war with God, and the only way to peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And this is just a summary of the other sermons Peter, Peter preached so far in Acts. But one thing he emphasized here is that Jesus is not only Lord, He is Lord over all. We saw in Jesus' interaction with Saul that He can save anybody. We see here in Cornelius that the Gospel is to be offered to everybody. no matter who they are or what they've done. This is how Peter closes the sermon in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the, God, uh, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge over the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So God can save anyone. Jesus is Lord over everyone. Everyone must respond. Everyone must respond. Respond. So that's, that's good news that God can save you from Him. Because you're like, save? Save from what? Is this a coupon? No. See, what it is is that God, who is holy and righteous and just, that one, you have decided to run your own life. The Bible calls that sin. And because of that, you are due the punishment, wrath, and fury of the Almighty God. And the problem is that you need saving. You are in trouble because of everything you've done against God. The good news is, is that God can save anyone. Jesus is Lord over everyone. God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus who lived the perfect life that you should have lived. He died on the cross for your sin and He rose victorious, beating death forever on the third day. And you, my friends, must... Do something with that information. You must act on that information in some way. Specifically, you must believe in the Lord Jesus. Verse 43, everyone, so anybody, everybody in all the bodies who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. That means by you banking your entire life on Him that you can be forgiven of everything you've done against God. The worst and awful and most heinous thing that you've ever done can be gone. It's not going to chase you down. It's not going to catch you. It was placed on Him on the tree. So Peter finishes talking about Jesus saying that He is the judge over everyone and He has the ability to forgive. He is the judger and the forgiver. And that's good news for us. Good news for us. It doesn't matter 
who told you that you're fine, who said your lifestyle is acceptable. There is only one opinion who matters. And that is the God who created you. It would only make sense that his opinion would matter the most, being the author of your life. I'm, not say, I'm saying he's not only the author of your life, he is the director of your life, and meaning that the direction of your life ought to be spent for him. So who, everyone who believes in him, who banks the direction of their life in him, in Jesus, receives forgiveness of all your rebellion against God through his name alone. Yes, sir, what, is, what name is your party under today? Dinner party of five. Sorry, that's no good. You see, the right name, the right name, only in His name is the forgiveness of sins. Only in His name can you enter into His kingdom. Only in His name is eternal life. So you go there and the hostess of eternity is there and you say, sir, what name is, what name is your reservation under? If you say anything other than the name of the Lord Jesus, my friends, you're not getting in. You see, the reservation for all of eternity into the glory of God, the reservation is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian today, the good news is that you've, all of that, the stuff that you've done, your future, your, your past that is, is weighing on you, the things that keep you from going to sleep at night, things that wake you up at night, things you stay up doing, all of that can be wiped away. It can be wiped away. In the direction of your life, it doesn't have to be chaos, run amok, and rebellion gone wild. No, no. It can be in Him. And the truth is from that that you must respond. So I'm going to be over to the side as they play here in just a minute. If you want me to pray with you, I can. If you are a Christian, are there these obstacles in your life is there some type of hesitancy towards someone? Like if I plop someone as a representative of any group and I laid them in front of you, are you hungry for them to get the gospel from you or is there a hesitance because of their skin color or their sin preference? How do you know how, how, do you know how you're doing with that? Are you hospitable towards strangers? Are you humble? Let's pray. Father, we are so desperate for you. We need you so badly to do this work in our hearts so that when we take this gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth, that it might get there through us to all kinds of people. We are not better than anyone, but we are made a servant to everyone because you can save anyone. Impress this into our hearts and do a million other things among us today that you alone know that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.